It's Jobs Friday, and we're not celebrating. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Friday. It is Jobs Friday. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This here is David Hansen. We've got a little bit of a different show here today, David, right? This is our, our Friday show. We'll call it our Friday show yep. as we head into the weekend. We've got a special interview today with uh, stock advisor analyst Brendan Matthews, friend of the show. Right, we had rave reviews of Brendan, so we brought him back. Friend of the show, Brendan Matthews. Uh, That will be a separate interview segment we'll have coming up here. Uh, First, David, this weekend we've got a lot of good football going on. You're known for your savvy stock picks. Now, why don't you wow the WTMIers with your football picks, and we will we will track these. Let me give me your pen. Give me all right, pen. all right. Uh, Got to go with the hometown Panthers, of okay. course. Or are we doing spreads or just straight up? Here? Just straight up. All right, Panthers, Seahawks. Then we're gonna go Chargers, mm-hmm. Colts, Chargers and Colts. So we got Panthers, Seahawks, Chargers and Colts. Market. That's Done. where the money is. All right. All right. Moving on to the headlines. We've got the December jobs report coming out. 74,000 jobs added in December. Is that, that is bad? way off what expectations were. The unemployment rate fell from 7% to 6.7%. As I say that, I can hear the choruses of, yeah, but we're not adding jobs. Uh, interestingly, 38,000 more jobs were added to November's tally. That's a good thing. Um, but this is, this is far from what anybody was expecting. Don't have too many takeaways on my end. Are you freaking out? Are you are you screaming? Your intro was we're not celebrating, but I feel like the last six times we've looked at the jobs report, it's been it's Jobs Friday and we're celebrating. So I don't know. It's one month, not a big deal. Here's an interesting little tidbit. I went back over the past ten years of jobs data uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The average difference in job additions from month to month is 101,000. So the absolute absolute value, obviously, of the change. 101,000. So from month to month, the average change, 101,000 jobs. So looking at one month doesn't do much for you. Not to mention that by the time we get January jobs numbers, they're going to revise the December jobs numbers. And anything like GDP, we'll probably have 400,000 jobs <laughs> added in December by the time January rolls. Jobs are important, but later in the show when we, when we look ahead, I'll tell you what I think is really important. All right, next headline. Next headline. Ooh, Wall Street predicts 50 billion bill to settle U.S. mortgage suits. And this is an extensive article over on DealBook. And they're looking at the J.P. Morgan $13 billion settlement. I know you don't like to lump that into one because it was a bunch of settlements rolled into the $13 billion ones. But there was, I guess, a law firm out there, some consultants that put together kind of a what could happen to the rest of the industry? How much could Bank of America have to pay out? How much could Citigroup? How much could Wells Fargo be on the hook for? Do you have that Bank of America estimate? I think they said it could be upwards of $16 billion. 16.7. And that's a combination of consumer relief, which is what we saw in, uh, with J.P. Morgan, and also fines. So, yeah, $16 billion. Citigroup they had only down at about $1 billion. $1 billion. Wells Fargo not even mentioned in the report, so maybe not so bad. We were there. just talking about Wells Fargo on the show yesterday. One of our one of the WTMIers wrote in and said, "Why don't you guys talk more about Wells Fargo?" Once again, Wells Fargo just—I I don't even—I I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they're doing it. How they're staying out of these big settlements, and not so much just because Wells Fargo has managed itself so well. But they bought Wachovia, so they didn't have control over what Wachovia was doing before. But and it's not like Wachovia wasn't doing any mortgage stuff. I mean, you, they the, had the acquisition, pay. the acquisition of Golden West. I mean, that 
not as bad as Countrywide by any means, but still, that was a very troubled institution. They had the pick-a-pay mortgage, right? Yes. How could you not run into trouble running something called the pick-a-pay mortgage? An interesting theory here that I have is that a lot of the, from an investment perspective, a lot of the investors that already own these banks are fully expecting a lot of these kind of settlements. And I think a lot of those people that don't own the banks are waiting out to when these settlements finish. I don't know if this, this theory will, will prove out, but the idea would be is that you can have these settle, settlements continue to roll in and the current investors, losing your microphone there, don't do that. Uh, the current investors aren't going to be scared off because this is baked into their expectations. Mm-hmm. But then as the settlements get out of the way, you'll see more investors become more comfortable. I was, I was wondering more of the show when we talk about Bank of America and potentially $16 billion, and that's just an estimate. We also have the $8.5 billion settlement pending review in court there, and I was wondering if that somehow doesn't get approved. This is, would happen. I don't know if it would, though. I, I was, wow, that's <laughs> dirty. Uh, I've jumped the shark now with this. Uh, <laughs> you have. It's a little ridiculous. Um, but even if the payouts are $20-plus billion additional of what they're expecting now, I don't know if that's a huge ding to the stock price. I'm really not sure if it is. Yes, it wipes out a lot of earnings there, but I don't know if that's a long-term concern for shareholders. I I don't think we would see Bank of America have a huge sell-off in that case. I, I don't know. That's just my opinion. On that note, hitting the third headline of the day, this is from Business Week, and the headline is, The Bitcoin Mining Arms Race Heats Up. You've got really a fantastic cover from Bloomberg Business Week there. Uh, Bitcoin dreams with the, the unicorn. with the unicorn and the bitcoins and the palm trees. It's it's really beautiful. Uh, speaking of jumping the shark, David, Bitcoin is this the beginning of the end with the Bloomberg Business Week unicorn cover? Well, it's the article's not so much talking about the big opportunities in Bitcoin itself, but more focusing on the people that are mining these bitcoins. And- sort of like the barbers who are trading stocks in two thousand. Well, it, I think they would probably like to compare it more to the, the people selling picks to people mining for gold. I mean, they're kind of the enablers of the Bitcoin system. So these people aren't necessarily, they detail a bunch of entrepreneurs. They're not necessarily betting on Bitcoin going up in price, but more so just, hey, we're going to get paid for mining this stuff. So why don't we use our expertise and our anal- analytical ability to do so? Um, and some people are making a lot of money doing it. It, it was interesting. One guy was saying he was making around 100 Bitcoins a day mining them, mm-hmm. which is a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot of money. And he said he was still in dire straits in his financial picture. So, because I don't, you can't yeah. buy any food with so it's Bitcoin. A, you well, can just, make, just $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, but you can't buy any food with it. You could buy some. You're, starting, you're literally um, a starving millionaire. But, but very interesting. If I was to think, if there's going to be people that get rich off Bitcoin, I think it's going to be the enablers rather than the speculators betting on the value here. There's a quote from a miner that they, a, mi- a Bitcoin miner, mm-hmm. miner, that the, in the article that I really liked, he said, it takes up a lot of time, but I have no kids, I have no life, I have a cat. And that's the people that should be involved with Bitcoin, full, being completely serious. If you have a wife and kids and a mortgage, don't risk all that to go the Bitcoin ride, in my opinion. I think if you have nothing and have a cat, go for it. I don't know. At least in this point in the game, if, if you have the technical expertise to, to be able to mine 100... Did you say 100 Bitcoins a day? He's got like a warehouse of computers here, so not your average Joe can mine 100 Bitcoins a day. Right. But if you're, if you're mining 100 Bitcoins a day, that's an awful lot. I would just be... I would be changing it out. I would do some sort of hedging strategy to hedge my, my Bitcoin because it's been so volatile. Right. 
I don't think it's a bubble yet. I think it's going in that direction. But I think this is still, we're still climbing the wall towards it being a potential bubble. Right. All right, moving on to the week ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a big week next week. We've got bank earnings. We've got a lot of other things going on. Uh, quickly to review, Tuesday we've got Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan announcing earnings. Wednesday we've got Bank of America. We've got Citigroup and Goldman Sachs on Thursday, Bank of New York Mellon on Friday. Thursday we've also got a handful of smaller banks. Um, anything in particular that, that W.T. Myers should be watching out for as we look out to, to next week in the earnings? I think it's comments about housing. We talked about jobs, and I think that's important to some extent. But I think housing is really the backbone the backbone of maybe more jobs coming into the labor force, mm-hmm. banks being healthy, whether that be just loans being in good condition, but also consumers having a good financial picture. If your house is not weighing you down, you're not underwater on your mortgage, you're going to be willing to spend more, potentially borrow more, maybe get a home equity loan. I don't know. I know we don't want to get crazy with some people, but I think housing is going to be... Con- continuing to be very important. And I would be listening to comments from John Stumpfett at Wells Fargo. I mean, they have their pulse on the, the housing market for sure. But also just other things in the housing market. Housing starts, how is that trending? What, is, what are the smaller banks saying about the housing market? I think that's the very important thing going forward. You concerned about Goldman Sachs at all and maybe J.P. Morgan, given the concerns over Wall Street trading revenues? It's probably not going to be pretty. It's not going to be an all-time high, but we've said before, cyclical business. It's going to have its ups and it's going to have its downs. There's going to be quarters where it looks really good. I'm going to try not to get too excited about those quarters. What about you? Um, yeah, I, I'm just looking for expectations. I, I mean, I, I want to hear specifically that I'm not going to be looking as much on at the current numbers. They don't tell me as much as what we'll hear in the conference calls from the, from the bankers themselves, from the leaders of these uh, banks, saying what they're seeing out there, what kind of business conditions is there more loan demand uh, that we're just starting to see come online as we start to get better economic numbers? This month's jobs or December's jobs number obviously excluded from that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of economic numbers, retail sales comes out next week. Consumer price index comes out next week and housing starts as well. Do you care about any of those? Um, CPI is, I guess, a little bit interesting. It- no one's really worried about inflation right now. You don't. Well, actually, the funny thing is, the Fed is worried about inflation. They're worried that inflation is too low. Yeah, potentially. No one's worried about inflation being too high right now, which you could argue maybe that's something we should be worried about since no one's worried about it. Um, so I don't know. I'm not, probably not going to be looking at just that week, but of those three, I'd be more interested in CPI. Okay. Um, housing starts. You were t- just talking about housing. That could be interesting. I don't know how much that really tells us. Retail sales, I think, is a, is a big one. Again, our, our, our economy is just so uh, so overweighted to consumer spending that retail sales numbers are good. Um, you Maybe this is what you were alluding to, but going to Monday, going to the rest of next week, do you think there's going to be continued fallout or fallout, uh, period, from the housing number or the, the employment numbers that we saw today? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be correlated. <laughs> don't ask me. Is that what you were referring to? No, no, no. Was, was I was I waiting when I when I mentioned the, the jobs numbers? You said, "Oh, you'll hear more about that from me later." No, I was saying I, was I'll, I waiting for you to I'll just tell you. Say, no, I was going to say I, I was going to tell you what I think is more important than the jobs numbers. Do I still have to wait for that? No, you're good. It was just housing in general. I think housing is more important oh, than jobs. Oh, housing is more important than jobs. That's yes. what I was waiting for. All right, housing more important than jobs. So housing starts or just 
housing in general. Just houses. Just houses. <laughs> houses are important. All right, let's go on to the mailbag. We have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. Send us an email. We love getting your emails. Um, I'll point out, too, right now that for those who are watching on video, we have an audio podcast on iTunes. It's also available on Stitcher and Swell. So you can uh, access an audio version there if you want to listen on your commute. Mailbag today, I've got a question from Chris, and I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but Panahakel, Guatemala? I looked it up on Google. It looks really nice. Oh, oh, oh. But you Not the pronunciation, it. but it looks really ni- like a really nice place. Okay. Well, Chris is in a nice place. In Guatemala, WTMI is global. The question is, you've mentioned Annaly Capital a number of times, but I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around exactly what they do. Could you guys do a brief idiot's guide to Anneli? Does it typically trade below book value? David? There you go. All right, so what, what Anneli does, what most mortgage REITs try to do is they raise some sort of capital, then they go out in the marketplace and buy mortgage-related securities. So in Anneli's case, these are agency mortgage-backed securities. So they're backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So they don't have to worry about not getting paid on these things. So they go out in the marketplace. The credit risk. Correct. Uh, reducing the credit risk, but just focusing on interest rate risk and, and a couple other things. Uh, so they go out into the marketplace and buy up all these securities, hold them on their books, and then they get the interest payments coming in to them. But they also take those securities and pledge them as collateral to borrow more money to go out and do the same thing so they can build a bigger book, get more income coming in. Mm-hmm. So the core business is interest income coming in from the securities, and then they also pay out a little bit on their borrowings and also their hedges there. So the difference that they collect is what ultimately flows through to shareholders because they're a REIT. Uh, 90% of their earnings must be paid out there. Um, So that difference in what they get on their securities and what they're borrowing for is what shareholders really should care about. And to answer the second part of this question is, does it typically trade below book value? No. Historically, Annaly is one of the oldest mortgage REITs out there, uh, founded in in the 90s. The median price-to-book value multiple has been around 1.1 times book value over the course of the company's history. So hasn't historically traded at book value or, or below book value, but that doesn't mean this isn't justified right now. Um, since its inception, we've been in one of the arguably the greatest bull markets for, for bonds here. So mm-hmm. um, maybe not a, a great comparison saying just because it's below book value today doesn't mean it has to get back to book value in the near future. So the... It, the company buys and sells these uh, mortgage-backed securities. We mentioned that credit risk isn't a big concern because they're backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but interest rate risk, that's a key, that's a key component. What do you think sets apart Annaly or any mortgage REIT from another? It's, it's the management, and we've talked about that on the show before, is the management's vision, I guess you can call it, in terms of where do they think the interest rate environment's going to go. Do they, if they hold on to capital today... Do they think they can get more if they wait six months? So it's really a question of what the management team is doing. Um, that's the big factor. Because the, the business model sounds simple. You buy a bunch of mortgage-backed securities, you put them on your balance sheet, you finance them. Mm-hmm. But in terms of managing the, the duration of the securities that, that they're keeping, the amount of leverage that they're using on the balance sheet, that changes from period mm-hmm. to period, right? And, and we're relying on management to know how to do that, to, to not be caught... I guess, uh, with their pants down, for lack of a better way to put it. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, just to build on what you said, uh, going back the decade prior to 2012, the average annual multiple for Annaly, always above book value, peak of 1.48 times book value. There you go. Uh, we're going to we're gonna cut out now for a minute, go to the interview 
with Brendan Matthews, and, uh, and we will come right back to the show to finish off. Sweet. I'm here with Brendan Matthews from Stock Advisor. Brendan, thanks for uh, chatting with us today. Happy to be here. And as we're just really a week or so into 2014, let's start off with an easy one. What are your expectations for 2014? Well, so I don't think that's an easy one. Um, <laughs> I, I spent some time thinking about this. I'm, I'm very optimistic about 2014. I think a lot of, a lot of good things are going to happen. Um, a lot of long-term trends that we've seen, a more connected world, higher global standards of living. I hope that'll, that'll continue. And then some of the big mega trends that are related to so, sort of financial stocks, I think, will continue. More people will pay for things online. Uh, more people will do payments electronically. More people will bank online. Uh, more money will flow into ETFs versus traditional mutual funds. Mm-hmm. More people will buy car insurance on a direct basis. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about 2014. Sounds like you're already hinting at one of my later questions that involve <laughs> some of your stock picks. But before we, get, before we get there, going into 2014, we've got a lot of people talking about the valuation of the overall market, the right. valuation of a lot of stocks, saying that the market may be overvalued. What do you think about that? Well, so I think it's, it's easy to say that because we've had such a big run. Um, stocks were up th- over 30% last year. And then a lot of the sort of big-time um, media darling stocks like Tesla was up 300%, Facebook, uh, you know, nearly doubled, Solar City up, uh, you know, over 400%. So those Wouldn't are the... am st- noting one of those? <laughs> yeah. So it's great if you own those. And those are stocks that are in the news. But if you kind of step back and look at the market overall, it's at about 19 times earnings, which is a little higher than than um, than the long-term average. But considering that interest rates on a 10-year treasury are at about, th- are at about 3%, I think that's about fair. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the market is, is about fairly valued. I wouldn't advise staying out of the market cause it's, cause it, as a whole because it's, it's too overvalued. But then again, if you want to strategically hold a little bit of cash in an opportunity fund, that's fine too. Okay. And now uh, finishing off here, we on the, on the WTMI show did a fantasy stock draft. Yep. Uh, mid, about midway through 2013, you, I guess you'd call it midway through. And the five stocks that you picked were uh, Wisdom Tree, Bank of Internet, Bank of America, mm-hmm. Progressive, and HCP. So Wisdom Tree and uh, Bank of Internet both killed it in 2013. Mm-hmm. Are you still liking them both in 2014? Yeah, I still love both of those stocks. I own I own both of them. If I didn't own them, I would I would buy more. Um, I think that both of them have sort of trillion dollar market opportunities that they're pursuing, and it's a, a it's a great growth opportunity. Um, the flip side of that is, of course, these stocks are um, pushing out sort of new business models. They're uh, attacking established players, and so it's likely to be a wild ride. But I think five to ten years. From now, these could definitely be multi-bagger stocks. So if uh, Bank of Internet is a, is a David of the banking industry, Bank of America is one of the Goliaths that it would be looking to take down. Uh, Bank of America was another one of your picks. Are you, still, are you still strong on that one? Yeah, I still like Bank of America. It's run up a little bit since I originally recommended it, but it's at um, you know, 0.8 times book value right now. I wouldn't sell it. I wouldn't even think about selling it for less than book value. If it got above book value, 1.1, 1.2... I might think about selling it, but for now, I'm, I'm happy to hold it. What do you think is the biggest challenge ahead for Bank of America in 2014? So I think it's, it's working through the sort of bad loans that they're servicing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the, the big challenge. And I think over time, 
they'll work through those problems and uh, they'll have a stronger balance sheet and stronger and they'll have less of a drag on earnings. Okay. And, uh, and rounding out uh, Progressive and HCP, kind of at a tougher time than the others against the, against the S&P at least. Right. Uh, has your thinking changed on either of those? No, I'm, I'm, I'm still excited about both of them. Um, Progressive, I think, has a huge opportunity as more and more people are going to buy their car insurance directly, um, you know, over the Internet or over the phone versus going through an agent. And it's a super well-run, super innovative company. Um, another, another sort of emerging trend that I see in the insurance market is usage-based insurance. Mm-hmm. So that's where you um, plug a device into your car, and based on how much you drive, when you drive, where you drive, you, you have different sort of pricing for your mm-hmm. insurance. And basically, Progressive is a leader in that market. And then HCP is not a tremendous uh, growth story, but I think it's a, it's a solid way to play on long-term health care spending. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's at a fairly reasonable valuation right now. With Progressive, I think there was, a, there was a story about some investors shorting Progressive because of the potential of driverless cars. Are you concerned about that? Uh, no. I, <laughs> I, I Actually, I, I tweeted out that I thought that that might have been an elaborate practical joke. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but I think driverless cars are an exciting idea, but they're a long way away, and I don't think it's going to have any effect on Progressive. Are you looking forward to driverless cars, or are you afraid of driverless cars? Um, if, if I'm in the driverless car, I'm looking forward to it. Um, if it's if it's other people, uh, you know, possibly smashing into me, I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit wary of it. I'm more of a walker than a driver, and so if if I, I don't want to get hit by a driverless car. There you go. All right, Brendan. Well, thanks thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Matt. All right, we're back. That was great to hear from Brendan. He's mm-hmm. such a such a great analyst. Great to talk to him. Let's close out the show. Close out the week, David, on the Twitter sphere. Um, before I let you do it, at TMF Financials. That's where we are on Twitter. Give us our first tweet. Please. All right. This is from Bloomberg's Matthew Klein. He is at M underscore C underscore Klein. Useful primer on what a bubble is from at FoxJust. And then he links out to a Harvard Business Review article. This was an interesting article here. Kind of defining. People were always throwing around the word bubble. You said it earlier in the show. You said Bitcoin's not a bubble yet. Uh, And he's saying how hard it is to define what exactly a bubble is because Everyone's got a different opinion on it. So what do you think your definition is? I, I think when, when rational expectations have gone well beyond what, uh, what any reasonable assumption of reality would be, um, I, I think that's where you get into bubble territory. And what's ended up happening is that anytime something gets a little bit pricey or a little bit overheated, it's suddenly a bubble. But when we think about things that were true bubbles, think about the housing market in 2007 or internet stocks in 2000, rational expectations had gone so far beyond uh, reality that you could, it, it borders on delusion. All right, I'm going to steal Fox's definition. He went through Schiller's definition, Fama's definition, everyone's, and he kind of settled on this one. He said, bubbles arise if the price far exceeds the asset's fundamental value to the point that no plausible future income scenario can justify the price. That sounds familiar. Was that yours? Sounds like I just said that. All right, moving on. <laughs> I don't want you to live in your glory too long. <laughs> it's horrible, isn't it? History, this is from History in Pictures. That's at History in Pics. Seven years ago today, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone. Well, that was from yesterday, so seven years yesterday. Seven, seven years ago yesterday. Uh, it is amazing how quickly things change and, and, and just, I mean, there's, 
I, I don't really have any data or anything around this, but it's just to think that it was only seven years ago that the iPhone was introduced, and now we take the iPhone. Oh yeah, it, it's just I watch. I watched a little bit of the the keynote the uh-huh. seven, from seven years ago when he introduces the slide on. Uh-huh. The audience goes, "Ooh!" <laughs> I'm like, "Slide on!" Yeah, like <laughs> everyone has that now. And and and, and today the. Apple does tweaks to the iPhone, has the the new colors, the the bio, the mm-hmm. bio login, the the finger fingerprint login. What do you think we're like, going to be taking? Oh. Advi- what do you think we're taking for granted today? I think we're taking we take everything, everything. for granted today. It's just human nature. <laughs> but uh, looking ahead seven years, to to think about how much different our perspective will be, and this isn't just in terms of technology and the things we take for granted, but just the thing the way that we're thinking. So in in t- seven years ago was 2000, 2007. Mm-hmm. So then we were still, you know, we were still happily living to some extent in the delusion of the housing market. So seven years from now, are we living in some other different delusion? Mm-hmm. Are we on the other side of some delusion that we're living Man, in today? Going like Donnie Darko. Style. I'm just, I'm just saying, <laughs> or or could be this fantastic future that we're living in mm-hmm. uh, because the economy is just going to recover beyond anybody's wildest expectations. I hope we're all wearing silver jumpsuits. Um, Trent, well, you know in the future everybody wears trench coats. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's fact. <laughs> all right, scientific. Fin- finishing off with Bloomberg News. All right, this is interesting. <laughs> Walmart reassigns China food exec, safety exec, in same weeks after recall of donkey meat. Careful where you go with this. All right, so they found fox meat in... <laughs> what was supposed to be donkey meat in China. And to me, my takeaway is we try to understand stuff going on in multiple economies. This highlights I do not know a lot about China. I mean, I don't even know they like donkey meat over there, <laughs> let alone the hating fox well, I, meat. I mean, I'm in something the, every day. I'm in the same place. I saw the headline and I thought the donkey meat was the problem. <laughs> it turns out that the donkey meat was... So I guess somebody may be eating a, what they thought was a donkey meat taco and they're like, this tastes suspiciously like fox. My question is, <laughs> was someone eating it and they're like, yeah, that's fox. This isn't donkey <laughs> meat. What the... Walmart... Every time. All right, WTMIers, go on to our Twitter, at TMF Financials. Go on to our Facebook page, Motley Fool Financials, and let us know, where do you draw the line? What kind of meat? Would you, would you eat donkey meat? Would you go all the way out? Would you be okay with fox meat in your donkey meat? All right. <laughs> and I guess, do you, do you have any, anything else to add? I don't have anything else. Let's end Without it getting inappropriate? Let's end it there. All right, that's all we have for today. That's all we have for this week. Uh, I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.